Good morning, everyone. If you're outside, come on in. We're going to get started this morning. We've got um, a large topic today. So I'm going to go ahead and get us, get us going because we're going to try to do the whole kingdom of God today. So somebody uh, close the door. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's pray together. We'll we'll enjoy the fellowship. Thank you, Father, for this time we have together to enjoy um, our fellowship, to enjoy the Lord's day. We are so blessed, Lord, that in this world that is so difficult and so anti everything that is holy and good, that we gather together in in a manner to give us really a small piece of heaven, a small taste of the future. And speaking of that, Lord, this morning as we have the privilege of beginning to consider the kingdom of God, I pray that, that this would be a time of rejoicing for us, a time of, of excitement and anticipation, Lord. And we would join the Apostle John in his final prayer of all the Bible to come soon, Lord Jesus. And we would ask you to bring your kingdom soon, that your kingdom would come. And we pray, Lord, that our time this morning would be a good start to our Lord's Day, that it would um, offer to you the worship of our minds and offer to us, Lord, the, the focused worship that we desperately need in a world that is so devoid of truth. So, Lord, I pray that this day the truths of your word this morning in our official worship service later and this evening, Lord, as we gather one last time. We pray that these truths would so deeply implant themselves in our minds and our hearts that we could not help but become more like Christ. And we pray that's the result of this day for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this is Module 5, Session 7, The Kingdom of God, literally one of my most favorite subjects of all time, so I make no guarantees as to whether we'll make it through the whole thing. Um, And one thing I enjoy about teaching in a Sunday school setting is that I feel very free to go on tangents anytime I feel like it, so um, I enjoy that. This is a great picture that illustrates what the kingdom is all about. This is basically a representation of the first and second comings of Christ. If you can see that, um, you have the crown of thorns, his first coming, and the real crown, his second coming. So I'm going to take my time. We've got 15 or 16 slides, and if we make it through all of it, we we will. And if not, um, that's totally fine. Module 5, Session 7, potentially Part 1. So, And I have a remote now. I don't have to lean four feet anymore, so that's kind of nice. Thank you, Mark. So I want to just introduce this topic. I'm not in a hurry, um, but the importance of the kingdom of God, this is not a side issue. This is the theme of the Bible. If anybody asks you, what is the Bible about? You say, the kingdom of God. I didn't want to type kingdom of God a thousand times, so KOG works too. Um, But that's the theme of the Bible. Uh, The Bible is not a book of moral directives. It is not a book of how-tos, although it includes those. It is a book that explains, beginning to end, the kingdom. Um, Which is one of, this is reason number 211, uh, why I am a pre-millennial pastor. Because only premillennialism that says that Christ returns and then sets up his kingdom, only premillennialism ties a bow on everything that God started in Genesis and got interrupted by sin. Um, those who are amillennial and say that uh, the kingdom of God is now, uh, 
um, also say that Satan has been bound. Well, there's a small problem with this. Just read Revelation 2 and 3, the churches of this age, and Satan is mentioned about a half dozen times. In fact, he's said to have a throne on this earth. How can Satan be bound and have a throne on this earth at the same time? So, um, kingdom of God is a, is a hugely important issue, and it is one that is pretty highly debated. And so that's why we'll take some time here. In the first two centuries of the church, the kingdom of God was viewed as future, and it was linked with the second coming of Christ. And so um, the, the church wasn't linked with the kingdom. In other words, in the first two centuries, there were no major theologians, no, no shepherds, no pastors, um, who, no church fathers who said the church is the coming of the kingdom. The church is the fulfillment of the kingdom. Nobody believed that. That's pretty important for us to understand. In the early 4th century, the church historian Eusebius linked the kingdom of God with the reign of Emperor Constantine. Now, why would that link be there? Because in the early 4th century, um, Emperor Constantine claimed to come to faith in Christ. Um, He's the most powerful man in the world. Now, that's debated whether it was actual faith or not, but first of all, that was a good thing, because what that finally did was ended the Christian persecution that had been going on for 250 years. Um, so that gave the church a break. That's why our earliest church councils don't start until the 4th century, because the church was too busy surviving to sit around having church councils and thinking about theology. They were just on the run and surviving and preaching the gospel. But Eusebius saw this pattern. Wait a minute. An emperor, the most powerful man on earth at the time, is now also a Christian. And so Eusebius began to put forward the idea that the kingdom of God is something that is, uh, that, that is potentially on earth at the moment. And he linked Christianity with the Roman state coming together. And this starts to sound familiar, and you'll, you'll, you'll recognize this even more. Then in the 4th century, you have Augustine's influential work. And, and I don't want to ever um, turn anybody away from Augustine. He was a wonderful believer, saved gloriously because of the prayers of a praying mother. Um, but he was early in church history, and he was exploring theology in ways that today we would say was, in some ways, uh, fairly inappropriate. Uh, Augustine uh, believed that the Jews were done as far as God's history for all time, and so there's some problems with him, but, but I want you to see him as a, as a godly hero of the faith. However, he wrote his influential work, The City of God, and in this work, uh, the kingdom of God becomes very, very strongly linked with the visible church. And so in Augustine, we have really the roots uh, of covenant theology, where the kingdom of God is happening now, if you're the amillennial flavor of covenantalist. Well, at that time, the visible church was quickly becoming what we know as the Roman Catholic Church. And, and I, this is hard to explain, so I'm going to take a little rabbit trail here for a moment. It, it's not as if that there were all these faithful churches and they were preaching the gospel and it was, it was like a, you know Grace Bible Church Ephesus and Grace Bible Church uh, Corinth and, and all of that. And then all of a sudden one day a switch flipped and everybody started wearing funny hats and robes and uh, they just, we suddenly turned Catholic. That, that's not what happened at all. The Catholic Church as we know it today probably could be traced back to maybe about the 12th century. 
But it took centuries and centuries for that transformation to occur until they finally just abandoned the gospel uh, altogether. Uh, Men like Athanasius, um, both Protestants and Catholics claim Athanasius in the the 3rd century as a hero of the faith. Both Protestants and Catholics claim Augustine as a hero of the faith. And so Augustine, though, I think one of the, the bad influences of City of God was that the Roman Catholic religion said, yes, the kingdom of God is on earth now. It's ruled through the church. We're the church. And so they continue to, to uh, demonstrate that even today. For most of church history, those with amillennial theology have strongly connected the church and the kingdom of God. Um, this is still to this day um, a, a huge Catholic belief. And so you have to admit, if you're, if you're Protestant and you believe that the true biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, and yet you believe the kingdom of God is on earth today, then you have to admit that you have merged with Catholicism at least at that level. And so that's, that's just a fact. It's not an emotional thing. It's just a fact. Well, uh, about the ma- mid-1800s, we finally begin to have uh, theologians more openly questioning the idea that the kingdom is linked mainly with the church. And that's a, that was a good thing. Um, but to be clear, that date of the mid-1800s of challenging that belief, that doesn't mean it's the first time anybody thought of it. Um, the first time anybody thought of it was in, in the epistles and in the teaching of Christ himself. Um, Christ himself uh, never taught that the kingdom would be on earth without him. He never taught that. Um, little digression here. Acts chapter 1 was the very last recorded question we have from the apostles to Jesus. Is it at this time that, the, that you're bringing the kingdom in? And Jesus said, I'm not going to tell you when. It's not for you to know. But what does that mean? He, he's saying, no, it's not at this time. And he ascends into heaven. So no, the kingdom did not come uh, at that point. So that's just a little bit of history. And we're going to fly really high here for a little bit. Altitude-wise. What is the kingdom of God? There's two main biblical understandings of the kingdom of God. There is the universal kingdom. The kingdom in which God reigns over every detail of the universe. And this this kingdom has always been and always will be. Uh, We were at our dinner table the other night. We were discussing how do you picture... Um, how do you picture the fact that God never had a beginning? Like, I, for some reason, it's easier to picture not having an end because we kind of just keep going from here. But going backwards and picturing that God never had a beginning, that he never began, that he has always been. And we used phrases at our dinner table like blowing brain fuses and curling up in the corner and sucking your thumb because we can't fathom that at all. And so the universal kingdom in which God reigns over everything, that, that's that's common belief among all believers. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. We agree with this. God is sovereign, but he also has sovereignly allowed uh, Ephesians 2, verse 2, Satan to be the prince of the power of the air in this time. 
So let me ask you this. If you have small children and you allow one of them to be sovereign over his bed and dresser, does that mean you're not in charge of that? No, you're still in charge of it, but you have, you have uh, let that little version of Satan be in, charge of, uh, be in charge of something for your own purposes so that, so that he can learn something and so forth. So the universal kingdom, we don't deny that at all. Just because we would say that the kingdom of Christ has not yet come, that is not a denial of... And this is what's called a straw man argument where somebody sets up something that you don't actually believe and says you believe it. But the straw man argument says, well, if you don't believe Christ is reigning on earth, then how can God be sovereign? God is sovereign over the fact that Christ is not yet reigning on earth. That's a simple explanation. So that's the first understanding of the universal kingdom. The second understanding of the kingdom is what we would call the mediatorial kingdom in which the kingdom of God is established on earth. It's, it's mediatorial, it has mediated in that God uses human agents to establish his rule. In the Old Testament, this kingdom was imperfectly established through uh, the, the kings of Saul, King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. It was imperfect. And what happened to that kingdom? It fell apart. Why? Because it needs uh, perfect people. We need a perfect king. And the history of Israel's kings, the history of Judah's kings, 19 on either side or so, uh, tell us that at some level they all failed. Every one of them. Some were better than others. And so after 38, 39 kings that fail, what does that tell us in Scripture? (sighs) We need a king that won't fail. And so that can only be, of course, the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the mediatorial kingdom is basically the story of the whole Bible. And so I want to spend the rest of our time today, and if we have to move on to next time also, I want to tell you the story of the mediatorial kingdom, because it is a story. You have elements to this, and we're just going to list them by, by number here. The first element, creation. The story of the kingdom begins in Genesis 1 with creation. What was mankind's directive? What was the, the uh, central directive, as we called it in the uh, Pentateuch series we did a couple years ago? The central directive is that man is to subdue and rule God's creation. That mankind was responsible to multiply, to make subjects for this kingdom. And that man was God's vice regent over the earth. That man was to rule on God's behalf over the earth that God made. So that's the story of creation. That, that's the, that's the uh, beginning of all things. That's why it's so, so important that we take Genesis 1 and 2 literally. Because if you don't take Genesis 1 literally, you can't take the parts uh, literally that, that speak of mankind's rule on earth. And so that has to be taken literally. That's the entire point. What's the point of God's creation? It is to have a kingdom in which mankind rules on God's behalf and enjoys all the blessings of what that entails. The second part, you have the kingdom and the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you will I curse. I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The animals too, but the families also. (laughs) Abraham would be blessed personally 
A great nation would come from him. That's promises of land, by the way, also. And Abraham and the nation that comes from him would be used to bring blessings to all the nations of the earth. So this is a, a picture, this is a triangle, and at the very top is Abraham, and flowing down is Israel, and flowing down from Israel is blessing to all the nations, every single one of them. At the very end of all things, what is, what is God's uh, tying up the, this bow? The Abrahamic covenant, we've already done the Abrahamic covenant, it's an eternal covenant, it's a forever covenant. Israel, for all time, will be the capital nation on earth. And so, um, that's the Abrahamic covenant. And the kingdom starts there, and it's just a, it's just a, a little, small taste. The book of Genesis records how this great nation from Abraham began to develop. That's one of the biggest points of Genesis. And through the generations of Isaac and Jacob, the number of physical descendants began to grow. And and let me give you a little clue here too. Uh, Digression number two, whatever number we're on right now. Abraham, the very first um, Israelite, if you want to put it that way. But what was he like? Well, he had hundreds of people that he ruled. He had an army himself of over 300. His descendants were promised to be like the sand of the sea. Um, He owned land, although he never took possession of it. Um, Canaan belongs to him, but he never took it. Um, What do you call somebody who has an army, who owns land, and has a whole lot of people? We call that a king. And so Abraham was never called King Abraham, but he was very kingly. Um, In fact, uh, the book of Genesis records him taking on four kings and winning um, in battle. So he was very kingly. He was was the, um, the epitome, really, of what a future king would look like. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6, gives God's plan uh, for Israel in history. And that, that it tells us what's going to happen. So you have the third element, then, the formation of this chosen nation. A few hundred years later, the physical descendants of Abraham multiplied in great numbers. And after a period of slavery in Egypt, they are delivered. And that's the book of Exodus. At this time, right now, is when a, a historical kingdom of God begins to exist in reality. That at Mount Sinai, you have a kingdom formed. And in fact, God gives Israel their purpose. And it's found in Exodus 19.6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So let's focus on those words. A kingdom. So who's the king? God is the king. This is a theocracy. Eventually, and it was always God's plan, going all the way back to Deuteronomy 17, it was always God's plan for God to appoint a human king over Israel, but not yet. First, they needed to learn that God is their king. They would need lots of time to learn that, and they didn't ever quite learn it. So they're a kingdom. But they're a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They connect God to men and men to God. They are mediators. Israel was always meant to be a mediator. In fact, we saw this in Ezra 4 and 5 and 6. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, didn't we? That Israel, uh, when they're, the, the, the exiles who came back from exile and they're rebuilding the temple, 
all the syncretists, all the religious people who said that we worship the true God, but we also worship Baal, we also worship Ashtoreth and all this, they, they said, we want to help. We're part of you. We're like you. And the Jews said, no, you're not. You are not going to help. And they stayed separated from them. But we know, the evidence shows that they weren't harsh about it, they weren't difficult, and they were kind to their neighbors. How do we know that? Because uh, 25 years later or so, when the temple is finally finished, and the Jews celebrate their first official Passover with the reinstitution of temple worship, who joins them, according to the last part of Ezra 6? All the new converts from the nations around them. Israel had done their job in, in some small sense. And in fact, it describes those converts as those who separated themselves from the sins of the land and from the pagan gods. So that's what Israel was always meant to do. And we've said this before. I'll give you a really simple analogy. Israel's job was to be a magnet that attracted the peoples of the world to itself and to her God. The church has a different mission, don't we? We're not a magnet to attract people uh, inward. We are to go, therefore, and make disciples. So we go outward. It doesn't mean we're not building individual churches and so forth. But that was Israel's job. They're a kingdom, they're priests, and they're a holy nation. How is anybody going to know that they're God's holy nation? Because they operate completely differently than any other people. And people saw this. They saw that they were set apart. Their diets were different. The way they did their weeks were different. Their worship was different. The way they did their families was different. Um, There's only one place on earth during the Old Testament that you could go as a woman to be treated well. And that was to be an Israelite. Um, Every other culture treated women like property. Um, Israelites were not to do that. Women were protected at a level that has never been seen in human history before or since. And so everything about them says we're different, which what's the lesson for us as a church? Uh, You want to attract the lost? You don't try to become like them. You show them how much not like them you are. That's, that's how you attract the lost. So that was their job. The, the, the formation of this chosen nation becomes official at, um, at Mount Sinai. And, and this is really important. How is it that God, I would put it this way, took authority over Israel? First of all, he grew them in the cauldron of slavery. Um, they, were, they were slaves. They didn't have anything else to do except to have babies. And so for 400 years, they had babies somewhere in the vicinity of three to five million of them. Lots and lots of babies. And people have said, well, that's impossible. If you do the math, the 70 people who came uh, under, under Joseph, the 70 uh, of Abraham's descendants who came uh, with Jacob as the patriarch, you do the math, getting to three to five million in 400 years is actually very doable. And, and some have taken it as far as you could get up to 20 million. So that's not out of the realm of possibility. So uh, how did God get them into a nation? First of all, he, he let them grow. He put them in the Petri dish of Israel, or of, of Egypt rather, and they grew and grew and grew. Now you got something to work with, right? Then he rescued them. And everybody in the ancient Near East knew that if a king comes and gloriously rescues an enslaved people, you are bound to that king. And so God, the king, rescued them and he brought them to Mount Sinai and he said, you are bound to me, I will make a covenant with you. It's what we've, we've said before, the suzerain vassal treaty, the great king making the treaty with the lowly nation. 
and Israel on multiple occasions in both Exodus and Deuteronomy signed the covenant, said, yes, we will obey and we will love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, along with that, so they're going to be a nation, whether they're given by God. Well, all the way back as far as Abraham, Abraham was given land. He never possessed it because he didn't have a people big enough to possess it. Um, Fast forward hundreds of years, now you have a people big enough to possess it. Um, Why do we always side with Israel on any land disputes, even in modern times? Because God deeded that land to the descendants of Abraham 4,000 years ago. And God is the one, you always go back to the original deed, right? And God is the one who wrote the original deed. So the formation of a chosen nation, that's the next part of the story. The kingdom land is given to the chosen nation. How did it actually happen? Well, through Joshua, the Lord gives his people Israel the land of promise, at least on a limited basis. Um, Joshua 21.43 says that God was faithful in fulfilling his promises. Now, there is a bit of a paradox here because we know that Israel didn't possess the land completely and later... Scripture will discuss the restoration of Israel to its land. And so, so it's, it's incomplete, but they had enough of it to say they're a nation and, and, and to build a capital and so forth. You have the fifth element of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God on earth with Israel reached its high point under the first three kings. Saul uh, was the king that Israel wanted, and God gave it to him just so they could learn their lesson that, that God should choose kings, not people. Then you have David and Solomon. Really the the greatest uh, period in all of Israelite history. Think about this. 3,500 years of history. And there's only really one golden era of 80 years. And that is David and Solomon. Um, One golden era. And how did that end? It ended with Solomon um, doing some pretty terrible things. And raising a son who couldn't keep the kingdom for 24 months. So the kingdom ended ultimately with the Babylonian captivity. Um, The time for this kingdom was about 1445 or so, 1446, somewhere in there, to 605 B.C. It began unraveling in 722 B.C. with the northern kingdom being conquered by Assyria. So you have this sort of flash in the pan. I'm going to put it this way. It's like a... It's like, uh, forgive me for using a, a baseball analogy, but I can't help it. It's in my DNA. It, it's like a young man coming up into the major leagues and he hits five home runs in his first five games. And you think, this guy's a star. And then five years later, you say, what happened to that guy? Well, he sunk down to batting 192 and then he uh, went to, to the minors and you never heard from him again. That's kind of what happened with Israel. They started with a bang. I mean, Solomon was such a great king, literally the wealthiest man on earth, literally the wisest man on earth, kings from all over the world were sojourning to come hear his wisdom and bring him money. They wanted to be in good with him. That, that was a glorious time, but it just took a decade or two after Solomon for that to unravel. So now you have the need for help. The sixth element, with the decline of the kingdom in Israel, the prophets foretold a future glorious earthly kingdom. Again, we see um, the failure of the kingdom tells us we need something better. Uh, Joel chapter 3 is all about the the glorious future kingdom. And then we have what um, one Old Testament scholar, and I studied under him, is a very wise man in the Old Testament. He says that Amos 9, 11 through 15 
is the key to understanding all of the Old Testament. It's, the, it's what the Old Testament was aiming for. And so I just want to read this text to you. This is speaking of the coming glorious earthly kingdom. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Okay, we'll stop right there for a minute. Um, prophetically Amos is saying that someday all the nations on earth will be called by the, by God's name all the nations will serve God that's not happening now that's not kingdom now I mean you, you wouldn't ever say hey let's fly to Iran so that we can really get to know the kingdom of God you'll get to know the kingdom of God because you'll be killed and you'll be in the kingdom so that's that's one way to do it I suppose <laughs> so that can't be happening now and you know this there are nations and there are Israel they're, they're separated Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I I know in this very room we have farmers and we have people in here, it's been in Kern County forever. You understand this is agriculture country. What does it take to grow stuff? It must take more than I know because I can't grow anything. And I've tried. I've grown a, an entire garden of weeds that were supposed to be watermelons, but they never turned into watermelons. It was just a, a self-imposed chore to pull them all out again. This is a kingdom in which you drop seeds in the ground and stuff starts growing and you're running away because the people who are, are harvesting the crops are right behind you saying, move, move, we're on the way. In other words, it's a, it's a hilarious, joyful picture of incredible prosperity. Something we don't see now. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That's the key of the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament is aiming for. Amos 9, 11 through 15. You cannot just spiritualize that away. Well, the gardens are actually the church. And the, and the, uh, the land is actually our faith in Christ. You can't do that. If it says land, it's the Hebrew word eretz. It means land, dirt, stuff, things. It's physical. I listed some other references here about the glorious future earthly kingdom. Zephaniah three fourteen through 22. Uh, Zephaniah three seventeen says that when the Lord returns to this earth, he will sing and dance over his people. Um, we always think how great we're going to feel when we are united with Christ. Has it ever occurred to you that Christ will feel even better? Uh, that's a phenomenal thought, that he'll rejoice over his people. Zechariah 8, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14. You cannot read those without um, understanding this is speaking of a future kingdom. And you remember, if you've been sitting through our Ezra-Nehemiah series, you remember why Zechariah wrote. He was writing to this little tiny ragtag bunch of a few thousand uh, exiles who were coming back to build a, a cute little Lego temple. It's just a little bitty version of what Solomon's temple um, was. And, and you recall in Ezra that when they laid the foundation of the temple, some of the old men who had seen Solomon's temple wept. It's like if you'd spent part of your life living in a 5,000 square foot home and enjoying all the amenities of life, and then you have to move into a one-bedroom apartment and your wife walks in and she starts weeping because it's not what it used to be. 
And so Zechariah, along with Haggai, is brought, they're brought by God to the little ragtag bunch of Israelites rebuilding the temple. And Zechariah tells them of a glorious time to come when Messiah will return. And he ends climactically in Zechariah 14 that uh, Messiah will return and he'll stand on the Mount of Olives so hard that it'll split in two and he will, uh, he will destroy all of his enemies. And Israel will reign in peace. And from that day forward, all the nations will bring their glory to Jerusalem. What an encouragement to that little ragtag bunch. Uh, like, how about us here? Do you, ever, do you ever take a little bit of comfort living in California that our church is now behind a locked gate and you can't see us? I, I'm comforted by that. Uh, maybe Governor Newsom will drive by and won't even know we're here. Well, that's going to turn around someday. Someday it will be that the Christians are ruling and that we are those on earth that are fulfilling God's purposes. So the decline of the kingdom of of Israel, this could have been disastrous. Uh, Habakkuk questioned the Lord, what are you doing? This is supposed to be your kingdom. But you have all of these glorious passages, Ezekiel 36 and 37, Isaiah chapter 2. They give hope and say, never fear. Yes, I'm punishing Israel now, but she's coming back. So Israel ends her history in shame. You have the end of the Old Testament period around 400 B.C. or so, very, very broadly. And you have what uh, theologians call the silent years, where God sends no prophet and, and there's no word in Israel. That is part of God's curse. You have, uh, you, you have the, the Greeks coming. You have the Egyptians coming for, for a short period of time. Um, even for a little bit of time, Israel was independent briefly. Um, then eventually you have the Romans coming. They never became the kingdom. And eventually Israel degraded spiritually to a point that when by the time Jesus was born um, the leaders of Israel genuinely believed that their job was to hate all Gentiles they were completely the opposite of what they were supposed to be and that's why God was so condemning of them on earth so what does God do in grace to this nation that is no longer a kingdom that's living under the oppression of Rome and is a, a shadow of its former self. What does God in His grace do? He sends their king. And the next phase in the, the kingdom of God is the arrival, the first arrival of the king. As the New Testament era dawns in the first century, this is monumental. The long-promised Messiah, the king of Israel, um, arrives. And, and we should just point this out. Messiah, Christ, Those are the same words, two different languages. They both mean the anointed one. And that is primarily a kingly term. What did Samuel do with King David? He anointed him with oil. So the the messianic reference isn't just a reference to Christ as Savior. It's a reference to Christ as King. And so that's who Israel was to look for. He has the lineage of the promised king, Matthew 1, 1 through 17. If you ever wonder why is the big long genealogy in Matthew 1 there, it proves the lineage of Christ. He's born of a virgin, Matthew 1, 23. That's pretty special. Only happened one time in all of history. So that, that proves something. 
and prophetically from Isaiah 7.14 as well, it was predicted. He will someday rule over Israel, Luke 1, 32 and 33, the angel Gabriel um, says this, he will save Israel from her enemies, that's what a king does. right? Why, why did uh, Israel wrongly pick King Saul? I mean, God picked him, but, but they described to God, here's the kind of king they want. Uh, they picked Saul because he was tall and handsome and strong. And he also turned out to be a big wimp, didn't he? The biggest guy in Israel paying anybody and finally a little squirt named David to go take on Goliath. Israel's like, hey, that's what we hired you for. But he wasn't going to do it because he looked at Saul or he looked at Goliath and he was afraid because Saul was not a man of God. The king is supposed to save Israel from her enemies. Well, Luke 1, 67 through 75 says that Christ will be that king to save Israel from her enemies. And what's the first enemy that the king must save Israel from? The enemy of sin. Because without saving her from that enemy, the future kingdom can't come. And he will be a blessing to Israel and to Gentiles. Luke 2, 32 says this. So he, he fits everything that the king is supposed to be. So let's get a little more detailed now. What did kingdom, what kingdom did Jesus and John the Baptist mean? Because they, they, they talked about the kingdom. First of all, it was a kingdom known to the Jews. The absence here of any uh, formal definition of the kingdom in some of these uh, initial announcements, Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, John the Baptist saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because there's no formal definitions, what what does that tell us? It tells us that all the people listening to John the Baptist preaching and to Jesus preaching already had an expectation of what kingdom meant. They already knew it, so it's not explained to them. Robert Sosi writes this in his uh, article, The Presence of the Kingdom of, uh, in the Life of the Church. Um, he says, Since he gave no explanation of the meaning of the kingdom in his early proclamation, it seems reasonable to conclude that Jesus assumed that his audience knew the meaning of this term. So first of all, the, the kingdom is spoken of by Jesus and John the Baptist was something that the Jews around them understood. We also see that it's an earthly kingdom. The Jews held to a personal coming of Messiah. They didn't spiritualize that. They held to a literal restoration of the throne of David and the kingdom that a, an actual person descended from David was going to someday take David's throne again. This is a personal reign of Messiah on David's throne. They held to the exaltation of Jerusalem. They held to the exaltation of the Jewish nation and the fulfillment of all the millennial descriptions of that kingdom in all the Old Testament. that They believed that. If you ask any Jew, what is the kingdom to you? They would say it's when Messiah comes and conquers all of our enemies and uh, creates a kingdom of peace for us. What did the Jews try to do with Jesus? They tried to make him king, right? Why? Because they were sick of Rome. Just like they've been sick of Greece before that and, and sick of uh, um, the Seleucids, the, those who came before them, uh, the Seleucids rather. So they held to an earthly kingdom. And so there isn't a huge amount of explanation about the earthly kingdom in the Gospels because everybody listening to Jesus already knew what it was supposed to be. And they were looking forward to it. Why do you think that the apostles were arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom? And they're walking to Jerusalem and they're saying, well, I want to be greatest. I want to be greatest. And some of them even wimpily sent their mother to go ask, uh, can my boys be the greatest? (laughs) 
because they thought it was coming any moment and they didn't understand what must happen three times in the gospel of Mark alone Jesus said I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes they're going to torture me they're going to kill me and on the third day I will rise and on all three occasions if you read carefully the gospel of Mark each time right afterwards one or more of the apostles did or said something stupid because they didn't get it they didn't get that the first thing that had to happen was that Jesus had to die for the sins of all who would believe in him he had to be raised from the dead he had to ascend into heaven and all of them would have to die as well so they didn't get that part yet but you ask any Jew what's the kingdom it's when Messiah returns and he rules they, they believe that with all of their heart so for us as Protestant Gentiles to ever have a theology that excludes a literal reign of Christ on earth over literal Israel is pretty arrogant. It's pretty hurtful because if you said that out loud, if you stood on the town square in Jerusalem and said, uh, Israel will be excluded from the kingdom of God for all time, you're going to get dragged outside the city and flayed alive because they would say, that's our only hope. That's the only thing we're clinging to. So the earthly kingdom was something they believed in. They also were consistent that the kingdom that that Jesus and John the Baptist spoke of was consistent with the Old Testament view of the kingdom. Very, very consistent. If Jesus were preaching a kingdom different than the Old Testament prophets or different than the expectation of the Jews, wouldn't he explain this? Wouldn't it be redefining the kingdom? Wouldn't it be, he said, you thought the kingdom was this, but I'm telling you this is what it actually is. Um, Sosi writes this in his book, The Case for Progressive Dispensationalism. He says, it is inconceivable that Jesus, knowing the understanding of his hearers, would not have immediately sought to correct their thinking if he in fact had another concept of the kingdom in mind. Late in Jesus' ministry, the kingdom is viewed as far future and it involves a restoration of the nation of Israel. Those two go together. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, this is to the apostles, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Stop right there. New world. What is that? That's earth. That is on this earth. That's not a spiritual reign of Jesus in heaven. That is Jesus on earth. When? When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. So you have earth, Jesus on what? On a throne. So that's happening. What does he say is happening at the same time? You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Canada. Is that what he says? (laughs) Of Israel. When Jesus is on earth, there will be, I don't know what we'll call them, governors, minor kings, and you'll know them. There are men named Peter and John and James and all those guys. Then you have the ninth element here, the nearness of the kingdom. The nearness of the kingdom. As this Messiah uh, begins his ministry, he presents himself to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and his message and the message of John the Baptist is very simple. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what does that mean? That's a, that's a large topic, but we'll try to take it apart here just for a minute. The kingdom was near. The kingdom was at hand. It's close. And that's a simple thing. At hand means you can reach it, right? It's right there. And so that's how John the Baptist and Jesus both present the kingdom. So what does this mean? 
Does it mean it was near in proximity, but not actually the arrival of the kingdom? Jesus said the kingdom was at hand. Um, some would say that that means that the kingdom has actually arrived. Uh, what it means is that it's just there's proximity. It's close. Why is the kingdom close when Jesus is here? Because you literally could reach out and touch the king. So the kingdom is close. There's a nearness in the availability of the kingdom. Uh, the arrival of the imminent kingdom was conditioned on national repentance. Israel had to repent nationally in order for the kingdom to come. Did they do that? No, they did the opposite. They crucified their king. Will they repent nationally? Read Zechariah 12.10 that the eyes of Israel will be opened and they'll have a spirit of supplication and repentance and they'll see, they'll weep over what, what Zechariah 12.10 calls the one whom we have pierced. So it is coming. It just didn't come then. It was near in the person of the king. We've already mentioned this. You could reach out and touch the king. It was near in the words of the king. I'll put it to you this way. If you found out that at 1045 this morning, I'm going to stay in here and I'm going to preach whatever sermon I have prepared, but Jesus himself will be in the sanctuary um, teaching, this room is empty. And I'm in here going, what am I doing here? And I'm running over there too. How close was the kingdom? It was so close that you could walk around by the tens of thousands of people and listen to the words of the king at any time. That's the kingdom being close. And it was near in his works and in his miracles. Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. One place in the Gospel of John says that Jesus cleaned disease out of the northern region of Galilee. There were no sick people. That's the only time in all of history that's ever happened anywhere. What was that? That was a little preview of that's what the kingdom will be. Come to faith in me and that's where you'll be. The powers which the Pharisees saw was clear evidence of the demonstration of the kingdom. And so it showed this messianic authority. So in other words, anybody could come and say, well, yeah, I'm the king. Uh, not anybody could come and raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons. You know, Jesus never even broke a sweat casting out demons. There's only one time we ever hear of him perspiring and worrying. It is when he was in prayer over taking the sins of all mankind upon his own shoulders. But when he came to casting out demons, he's like, get out. That's power. Oh, how about 6,000 demons? Uh, get out. So he proved his messianic status. So every miracle he did was a preview of the coming, ki- uh, the coming kingdom. Uh, he, he took care of horrific uh, uh, perils and danger. He, he made storms go away. He took disease away. He took death away. He took hunger away. So what should Israel have done? He gave her no excuse. You should have known that this is me. He gave them no excuse. So you have next then, and we'll try to finish with this, the rejection of the king. The kingdom plan takes a surprising turn. I'll give you an example here. Uh, The the king is rejected by the people he came to save. John chapter 6 Records Jesus feeding 5,000. And by the way, there's a separate feeding of 4,000. He fed 5,000 Jews and then 4,000 Gentiles, just to show that he's the king overall. But he fed 5,000 Jewish men, not including women and children. So that's between 20 and 40,000 people that he fed miraculously with the loaves and fish. And you know that story. 
But you, what, what people forget is that the next morning they came back and most of them just wanted breakfast. They wanted the food part. And so he began preaching to them and he condemned them. He said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in my kingdom. In other words, you have to be in Christ, Christ in you. You have to take me on. You have to take up your cross and follow me. And almost all of them left. And then you have a few stragglers behind and Jesus asked the twelve, you remember this, he asked the twelve, are you going to leave also? And Peter said, where else can we go? You have the words of life. So he shows without a shadow of a doubt that if you simply came to faith in Christ as a nation, that he would be your king. And the surprise in redemptive history, not a surprise from God's standpoint, but from a human standpoint, is how could you possibly reject that? But they did. First, you have the rejection of the kingdom messenger, John the Baptist. Matthew 11, John the Baptist is murdered. He was the forerunner of the king. John the Baptist, by the way, is not a New Testament prophet. He's the final Old Testament prophet. Um, And Jesus called him the greatest prophet and the greatest man who ever lived. Why? Because he was the single human being who physically could take his finger and point and say, there is Messiah. He's that guy walking over the hill right now. All the others just said he was coming later. You have rejection by the cities of Israel. Matthew 11 represents the cities of Israel rejecting him. And you have the rejection by the leaders of Israel. Matthew 12. The leaders represent Jesus, uh, represent the nation as a whole. When Jesus was up north in Galilee, they sent a delegation to Jesus. And they were concerned because he was doing all these miracles. They were casting out demons and they challenged him. And they said, here is our official declaration as the official representatives, the official leaders of Israel. We declare that the works you are doing are by the power of Satan. And so what did, what did Jesus begin doing from Matthew 13 on? He began teaching in parables. And he turned away from Israel and he began going more and more to Gentiles. Because at that point, Israel officially said, we reject you. Now, this is where that issue happens, where Jesus said that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that is an unpardonable sin. Uh, let me take a moment to explain that. That does not go into that does not go further into history. Anybody who says I'm worried that I've committed the unpardonable sin, that right there means you haven't, because you're concerned about it. This was specific to the leaders of Israel. They have blasphemed the Holy Spirit by saying that the the, the powers and the miracles that Jesus demonstrated were by Satan, not by the Spirit of God. Now, why was that unpardonable? Here's why. They had full knowledge of who Christ was. Do you know that not one time did the wicked leaders of Israel ever challenge the fact that Jesus did all those miracles? They didn't challenge it. You, you couldn't challenge it. How do you, how do you challenge 20, 30, 40,000 people getting fed miraculously? How do you challenge a, a storm being, uh, being stilled so suddenly that it's instantaneous? How do you challenge people being raised from the dead? How do you challenge Lazarus? You recall from the Gospel of John that the Jewish leaders uh, plotted to murder Lazarus. And a pretty strong church tradition says that they did. 
Why? Because Lazarus was witness to the fact that Jesus is Messiah. So they saw the miracles. They heard the preaching. They were there. They, they heard the answers to their questions. They had full knowledge and yet they had willful unbelief. That's an unpardonable sin. Why is it unpardonable? Because if you don't think you need to be forgiven, God won't forgive you. Jesus said that it is the sick who need a physician, not those who think they're well. I added in the think they're well part. That's, that's what he meant. So you have the king being rejected. This is, this is unthinkable. And they're not just rejecting him. They're not just saying, uh, well, we don't really like you. We're going to move on to the next guy. No, you have... Um, and we'll do this last. We have a confirmation of the rejection. The rejection of the nation is clear at this point. There will be no belief in the Messiah. There will be no restoration of national Israel, no kingdom yet. And so now Jesus starts speaking in parables, Mark 13 or Mark 4, Matthew 13. The parables have two purposes confuse those who refuse to believe and to edify those who do believe. The parables begin to reveal new truths about the kingdom of of God. Um, The Old Testament prophets never spoke of two comings of Messiah. We only understand that in the Old Testament on the basis of the New Testament. Um, They never spoke of that. The parable of the wheat and the tares speak of good and evil growing up together until Jesus comes again in judgment. That wasn't spoken of in the Old Testament. After Matthew 12... Never again does Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of God is near. He never says it again. Why? Because they've, they have rejected him and now it's not near anymore. Now it's far. In Luke 19.11, he gives a parable to explain to his followers who were expecting the kingdom why the kingdom would be delayed. And don't, don't make the mistake of thinking this was somehow unemotional for Jesus. This is very emotional for him. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over the city that he came to save. And yet even in the midst of their rejection of him and his temporary rejection of them, there's a glimmer of hope because he says, he, he says in judgment terms, you will not see me again. But he says, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Jesus spends most of his time with his disciples. He's training them. He prepares them for his coming death and his departure. So let's, uh, let's stop there because I don't want to rush the rest. We have uh, about seven or eight more parts to the kingdom of God story. And I'm gonna, we're a little late, so I'm not, I won't take questions today, but we'll do that next time. So you might write some of those questions down. So let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now and... I can't speak for anybody here, but I see, uh, I see looks of excitement and joy on their faces, and I don't know what's in their hearts, but I sense a, an anticipation. I sense a joy, Lord, to the, the glory of the coming kingdom, a, a yearning for Messiah, and we would join those prayers. We would join those yearnings, Lord, that God's people of Israel have had for millennia. We in the church of Jesus Christ ache for the return. We ache for the rapture of the church. We ache to be relieved of this sinful world. We ache to be relieved of the oppression and the persecution that we are under right now. And so we join the Apostle John once again in saying, come soon, Lord Jesus. We pray that your kingdom would come and that you would set up this glorious reign, Lord, where we reign with you in peace and in joy. Give us the strength in the meantime, Lord, to live each day for you, to live in light of that coming glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.